Welcome to Law & More, the podcast from award-winning Hong Kong law firm, Bose Cohen & Collins, that explores issues in the legal world and beyond. This time around, our senior partner, Colin Cohen, meets Steve Vickers, the man known as Hong Kong's Mr. Risk. After serving as a senior officer in the Royal Hong Kong Police Force, where he led anti-triad operations and resolved numerous kidnapping incidents, Steve transitioned to the world of business. He is a founder and CEO of Steve Vickers & Associates, a risk mitigation, corporate intelligence, and security consulting company. As you'll hear, Steve and Colin have plenty to talk about. Stay tuned. Steve. Great pleasure to welcome you to Laura Moore. It's always good to see you. How's life been treating you recently? It's been a little difficult, like everybody else. Uh, I run a regional business. I have five regional platforms. I haven't been able to visit any of them for the last 14 months. We've learned to telecommunicate and auto-rotate and many other things. But yes, it's been difficult. Business isn't bad, but it's just the peculiar difficulties we find ourselves under in Hong Kong at the moment. I want to tell a little chat with you about your long, distinguished career here in Hong Kong. And you arrived in Hong Kong in 1975, and you joined the Royal Hong Kong Police Force, as it was then known at that time. I'm very interested into what really brought you here and what made you join the police force. Well, it was a good idea at the time. I'd been mountain climbing in North Wales in January, where it was really very, very cold. And somebody suggested to me, it's less cold in Hong Kong, which I actually thought was somewhere near Japan. So I signed up on the bottom line and I ended up here in Hong Kong in February 75, where things were a little different. We just got the Cross Harbour Tunnel, which had just been opened. It was a completely different world, completely different town. When you first came here as a police officer, what were you doing? Were you in, investigating or you just on the beat? I spent a traditional few months doing that, but I quite quickly moved into investigative stuff. I spent a lot of time in regional crime squads. Late 70s or the 70s up to the 80s was a time the ICAC had taken over and done a good job. Things were cleaned up. I was fortunate to join at a time when you were allowed to get out there and do things. So at a younger age, perhaps than normal, we had a go at some rather embedded targets like triads and the rest. And it was quite a colorful time. Obviously, the end of the Vietnam War was 73, 74. Lots of guns and things drifted down from there and then from the abolition of the Chinese Auxiliary Army, which also released a lot of other weapons. So 70s, 80s, 90s, where actually Hong Kong was a lot more, I would describe as sporty than it is now. When the corruption went completely, as it did, it left a bit of a gap. So one of the very good things that ICAC did was to leave a bit of a gap. The triads moved into the gap and we found ourselves engaged in some fairly ugly battles against triad organizations who stepped in to fill the void in various places. So it was quite a colorful time, an interesting time. There was a lot going on. Yes, because I remember when I first came out to Hong Kong, I was doing criminal work. Some of my good clients acting for people from the triad. I was educated through the other side. But anyway, after 18 years, you became head of Criminal Intelligence Bureau, which is you know, right up there at the top. Tell us a little bit about your experience at the time, especially dealing with the triads. I'm interested in that. Well, I guess I spent the last six years running the, the Intelligence Bureau, and we had sort of three pieces. One piece was agent handling. So that would be running undercover agents inside triad societies, trying to determine what they were up to. Uh, who they were dealing with, and to knock things on the head a little earlier than letting them happen. So that was the primary division. I had a separate major division, which was the analytical teams that would look at strategic problems, such as boring though it may sound, 
fish markets and meat markets and other places where organized crime bump up the cost to the Hong Kong punter by control and by exercising control over permits. And then looking at things like public light buses, the green ones are okay, the ones with the green roofs, because they go from MTR route to MTR route. The red ones were formed during the 67 riots, or the idea for them was formed during the 1967 riots. The idea being that a lot of people had gone on strike from the left-wing unions and the government decided we better put some more buses on the street and and that will solve the problem. Well, it didn't. It it created lots and lots of buses that that wanted to drive. Everybody wanted to go from central to western, but nobody particularly wanted to go to the other side of the island. Nature abhors a vacuum. So the triad stepped in and started to control the PLB routes. So if you wanted to drive between central and western, for example, you had to have a sticker in your window indicating that you'd made an appropriate donation. And if you didn't, you'd very soon have a problem. That's at the sort of lower level. At the bigger level, we made a big effort to try and get government to recognize that tribes are a real threat. Today, that's not happening. But we had a thing called a fight crime committee. Yes, yes, I remember that. And there was a triad renunciation scheme, which was a way so that you couldn't be black for life. There was a way where you could go in front of a judicial process and actually say, look, I did join. I want out. I'd like it registered that I want out. And that would be a way of avoiding this for the rest of your life. That was very effective. We had a working group on gangs and we used to run undercover operations, electronic operations, penetration, uh, and not just to prosecute them because prosecuting is helpful, but destabilization is better when you make their lives miserable. Um, I used to wander around Chun Moon. So we were handing out letters and descriptions of what the Sun Yon did in collaborating with the Japanese during World War II which again at the time didn't do their image much good when they were controlling the movie industry in Hong yeah, Kong. And of course you do speak Cantonese, so I think it would be difficult to go to Tremont <laughs> without being able to talk to people. It is helpful, yes, it is helpful. Yeah. Nowadays, the trials were a big issue. They were an issue when I came out here in 81, certainly were you know, great influence. Today, I know you haven't been in the Beatles for some time, but are they under control today? Obviously we hear Recently, there was that incident where they had a private boxing fight with their own fight club and somebody um, unfortunately got killed. Are they still there? Oh, the triads are very, very powerful. What happened, of course, in the last 10 years that gave them the the impetus and the oomph was Macau. Of course, the huge growth in in Macau gaming, junkets largely run between Macau and Hong Kong, facilitated a massive organized crime bonanza with some of the well-known Hong Kong triad societies running junkets moving billions of dollars across the border, bearing in mind that it's actually illegal for a a Chinese citizen to move more than a very modest amount of money from the mainland to Macau. Yet the official government statistics will show you that at its height, five years ago, 43 billion US dollars equivalent moved across the border. That's quite a lot of money. It was facilitated through classic methods, false transactions, uh, bag loads of goodies, all sorts of colorful methods. So this was a period of time where triads made a vast amount of money. And ironically, the crime went down a bit. You can always tell a classic organized crime when everyone's doing well, bad for business to have crime in the street. As you described just now, the punch up between that a particular society That's, to me, normally a sign of um, things not being too good. The government used to be annoyed with me, but I was always quite happy when they would fall out with each other because at least we could see nobody was in absolute control. When I first came here in the early 80s, Sundays used to be always illustrated by the heists in the jewellery shops. One of the well-known famous jewellery shops in Queen's Road Central was subject to guns, hold up, 
and substantial amounts of jewellery watches taken away. Were you involved in that? Yeah, with that, yeah area? That, that was one of my primary occupations, if that's the right description. But again, economic factors. Things weren't so good on the mainland. Heavy, easy availability of firearms, as I say, again, the disbandment of the militia, plus the surplus from the Vietnam War, all sloshing around. Black Star pistols, 7.62 caliber pistols were available for a few thousand dollars. You could buy 10, you only get a bonus one. So it took us a while to work out how to take these people on. Uh, and, and what we did in the end was, again, infiltration, electronic operations. And then we hit them quite hard, quite regularly until they stopped coming. But it was a tough period of time. They didn't just bring firearms. They also brought hand grenades. We even had people loosing off AK-47s in the streets of Puntong. So it was a somewhat sporty period of time. But we did manage to sort it out, clear that up. And we got through a whole series of methods. One was good intelligence work. Two was being quite tough with them. Uh, and three was good cross-border liaison, which also helps. So if you get intelligence that they're coming and that there's a problem, you can do something about it. You can't do much 10 minutes after it's happened. Another area which is interesting is the kidnapping. I mean, that, that also used to be quite a common occurrence in mm. Hong Kong, 80s into the early 90s, and seemed to be very well organized. And of course, you were involved in one of the very, very well-known cases, having kidnapped twice, mm. the Teddy Wang matter. Can you tell a little bit about that? A lot of people came down from the mainland in the 60s and 70s and made money in quick hit ways. Not all of them, but but many. And some of them had unscrupulous friends or friends that hadn't done well or that they hadn't shared the wealth. And as these people became more prominent and more visible and more ostentatious in the media, they became targets. I'm not going to name them, but four or five of Hong Kong's better known magnets all suffered from their children being kidnapped. Typically, the goal would be to take a child. I did 28 kidnappings uh, over the years, 26 back alive. In all of them, they were males. I, I, I don't think I ever did a single case involving a female kidnap victim. Now, you say that's a very chauvinistic situation, but I don't know whether people will pay for their wives. It doesn't appear to be the case in Hong Kong. In most of the cases, they would be children. In most cases, they would always be boys. And in most cases, they would be taken either outside of school or on their way home from school. In most cases, somebody in the household establishment, whether it's a former driver or somebody with whom they'd had business dealings, was involved in the, was in the matter. In the, the cases moved from smaller single jurisdiction cases, which were not easy, but more actionable to many cases, which were cross-jurisdiction involving international money transfers. So the, the victim would be taken here moved out of Hong Kong or moved across the border, demands might come from a third location and the payments made to another. So I'm not clever, but I did have an opportunity to work on quite a lot of these. So after a while, you developed a methodology which was appropriate to dealing with it. I mean, the primary goal is to get the victim back alive first and then deliver vengeance to those involved later. The, the Teddy Wang one was of interest because I had an involvement in that because I met the individual concerning who was in prison in Pentonville with another yeah, client of yeah. mine, and he got extradited back. And the interesting thing about that, he was just a small potato of a lookout, and he honestly knew nothing about anything else that he was involved in. He was just told to do A, B, C, and D. He never knew who was even given his instructions to and just to deliver and to follow before we were able to, to take him out. Well, of course, that case was very well designed. The brain behind it was a, a serving Taiwanese intelligence officer, a guy called Chen. He belonged to the Taiwanese MJIB, which is the, the, the political side of the, um, the Taiwanese equivalent of the FBI. So he sat at the center of it. And then the people who snatched the victim 
were one team. They were unconnected to the people that kept him, who were another team, who were in turn unconnected to the team that were making the ransom demands that, that was another team. The idea was, to, from the bad guy's point of view at least, to set it up as a cell structure to make it difficult for us to intervene with. It took a while, but we, we got them through means that I'm not prepared to go into even now. Largely, we're, we're electronic, at least to get our first flavor. And once we got a first flavor, we were able to keep an eye on them uh, and then work out who's who. But had we intervened earlier, we wouldn't have got anything because it was a, a team in a complete cell structure. So that was highly difficult. In the end, we recovered, I, I think, 95% of the ransom money, but not Teddy, who had been dumped over the side. If you had today's technology and today's abilities with how investigation is much more sophisticated, would you have been able to achieve more at the early times, do you think? We did pretty well. Our cleanup rate was very good. We got nearly everybody back alive. The Teddy Wang second case, to my mind, was highly suspicious. And to this day, I, I believe the Taiwanese gentleman concerned had more than one agenda. And I don't think the intention ever was for Teddy to come back. I recently was asked to give the modest lecture at the police detective training school here in Hong Kong on the subject of kidnap ransom. So some things have changed completely. I mean, everybody walks around with a mobile phone and therefore you're bleeding information as you go. But the clever operators will not be walking around with a mobile phone bleeding information. And they'll be very cautious about the world of CCTV it is omnipresent. But again, people who know how to operate, well-trained ones, can avoid it. Well, after a very distinguished career and after 18 years, you decided to move into private practice. Why? Well, I'd done 18 years. It was already halfway through 1992. I could see things were going to change. And I thought perhaps it's a good idea to get ahead of the curve. Through some of the international work I'd done, I met various people. I ended up being recruited by a large American outfit to run their Asian business. So I said, okay, I'll give it a go. And I set up offices I set up Japan, Singapore, the rest of Southeast Asia, Beijing and Shanghai and down as far as Australia. And I did that for seven years. It was quite interesting, mostly doing commercial work. I've never done a criminal defense case in my life, but I do work. But clearly civil stuff is fair game. And I've done quite a few private sector kidnappings since then. So now after working for this well-known established investigating company, you established Steve Vickers and Associates. Tell us what you do and what you're up to at the moment and your main characteristics and the main objectives of your company. There was something in between I did, actually. I joined PricewaterhouseCoopers, so I became the only non-accountant. You could say I was the only madman in the asylum or the only sane man in the asylum. And I built PwC, a risk business in Asia and China, and I ran that for, I think, two and a half years, largely focused on fraud and asset searching over big civil cases or criminal cases. It was very interesting. And then a little case happened in America called Enron. Yes. And they passed a law called a Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, which meant that big accounting firms could not do auditing and consulting. You either had to be a fox or whatever the, the other thing. So I, I was fortunate. I did a management buyout and I bought out that business because PwC were not going to get out of the audit business on a very friendly basis. And I set up an outfit called International Risk which I ran for, for some picky reason, I couldn't call it PwC anymore. And I, I ran it as international risk for seven years. We, we were quite big. I think we had 11 platforms around Asia and as far as Australia. And that went very well. Eventually, I sold that to another large international uh, organization listed on the, the New York Stock Exchange. I then worked for four years, three months and 92 nanoseconds with them. I, I honored all my no competes, no solicits, and, and I retired. 
I went down to Penang. I retired for two days. I went to the gym, rearranged my stamp collection and came to the conclusion perhaps this wasn't for me. So I decided I would set up SVA as a very small organization. I promised myself that I wouldn't hire lots of people. Then by osmosis, I proceeded to hire lots of people. And that's the history of where I am today. I read with great interest your analysis on political risks and other matters. And one of your main areas is advising people as to the risks, the difficulties, and to sort of give the heads up to advise companies as to what steps they should be taking. And Hong Kong has gone through some very interesting times. One of the areas which I found very interesting what you were doing is when you gave advice to the private sector, in particular with what we call our 2019 troubles or protests, whatever way you like to call it. And I'd like to get your call as to exactly what you were doing, how you perceive that unique characteristic which has never, ever happened in Hong Kong before. Spot on, good question. Just to answer your question about what we do, I have three divisions. One does business intelligence, which is political risk, as you describe it. Good old-fashioned due diligence into IPOs, working for the sponsors, for example, or M&A deals where someone is doing something with someone unfamiliar and would like to know hard reality behind the balance sheet. Well, in short, to help our listeners here, you would find out whether there are real skeletons in that cupboard. Indeed. And as it relates to IPOs, Hong Kong has a great opportunity to deal with mainland IPOs, but we also have huge risk because not all that glitters is gold. And I'm afraid there has been a dilution of the quality of due diligence by sponsors into IPOs. So yes, we'd have a good look. We'd start with the prospectus, good old-fashioned stuff. We'd look and see how real that looks. We'd look at the, the backgrounds and the reputation, whether the business actually functions the way it says it does, whether the predictions are feasible and likely, and then come back to the sponsors and say, if I were you, I would run before you take this. Or more generally, we'd find a grey area or two that needs to be fixed or declared or closed uh, and then move on from there. So that, that's one division. My second division assists people who have problems with white-collar crime, in particular international asset search. So most of my projects, whilst they may kick off in Hong Kong, will involve two or three other jurisdictions. So we would chase money and key assets uh, in support of a litigation from a firm like yours or a regulator. And we also do staff defection cases. So these are quite interesting cases. So let's say this is when the top five or six people maybe in a investment bank decide that they could do better elsewhere. Maybe their bonuses weren't enough this year. Maybe they think their boss is an idiot and they can do better without him. And typically they then decide to take the client base with them uh, very often by illegally copying data that really isn't theirs. On the criminal side, on the civil side, they breach the covenants that they've been working under. They visit the office on a Saturday morning and help themselves to what is there and then just disappear. And then you try to put the evidence together so legal action can be taken against. Absolutely. Both legal and administrative, often there's a whole series of things you can do. It typically all starts in the banker's club at lunchtime where somebody hands around a term sheet offering everybody, while he's still a director of the company, a chance to go. That's probably been typed up by one of the secretaries in the office on a computer. Actions are then taken. that Typically, they charge it to their expenses, which is just the more senior they are, the worse they are. Exactly. It's amazing how naive yeah. people are, how this all happens. Yeah. But anyway, to the political issue, the protests in 2019, and you wrote some really interesting views on that. Yes. Well, I managed to upset the yellow camp and the blue camp simultaneously. So I suppose we must have been doing something right. I've left all the things that we wrote on my website. So they're all still there. Yeah, we did monthly coverage as the protests emerged uh, and we gave predictions as to perhaps how things might play out. 
I was deeply sad by what was happening. And it was a bit like watching a train crash in very slow motion. As the protests escalated, the government didn't interact with them. And the Democrat Party refused to criticize the violence. Then the government got more angry. The Democrat side polarized. The police were largely thrown under a bus. In the absence of dialogue between the government and the people, the only people that the the people of the street were meeting were police officers. This is not an ideal scenario. So the situation escalated, the violence escalated. Foreign interference, I think, did start about then. I don't think it started off like that, but I think people jumped onto the, the bandwagon. Who was the big winner from this? It wasn't Hong Kong, was certainly not the big winner. The big winner was Taiwan, in that I don't think the incumbent president would have been elected if the Hong Kong situation, the, the problems with one country, two systems hadn't developed. So yes, it became a real festering mess and it was very obvious what was going to happen. The government, had they stepped in quickly enough in the first four weeks, I think things may have played out completely differently. But once that track was in motion, I think it was almost impossible for it to have ended up in such an unpleasant way as it has now. It's always after the fact, but was the policing, were their hands tied at the time or from your experience as a police officer and being intelligence, did they have any idea what was happening? I think they were very low key at the beginning. A couple of incidents which defined the whole problem. One was the Yoon Long incident, which was not the finest hour. And the bigger one was the storming of Lechko. I mean, anywhere in the world, you know, if your legislature is sacked as it was, that is a massive issue. And the failure to prevent that was very regrettable. But in the meantime, bear in mind, the police had literally been thrown under the bus. They were the only ones on the streets. And it was a difficult situation. There was a change in leadership halfway through, which... I think, changed uh, the police's situation. So I was reporting basically on what's likely to happen next as opposed to what's just happened. Rearview mirror stuff, it's easy to be accurate with. The NSL and the rest was come as a big shock. I think it's a shame what has happened in Hong Kong, but I think we just have to live with the reality. This is where we are now. It could have been prevented, yes. It wasn't. Who is guilty? Everybody from all sides. I just hope that as things calm down a bit, that, that perhaps we can get to a more semblance of stability. I mean, we have stability now, but clearly there's a lot of very upset people. The underlying roots caused all of this, which still remains up in the air. But the pandemic came in. Have you ever thought of the water to put out the fire? Right. That certainly happened yeah. with the pandemic and then the emergency legislation for gatherings, etc. And you wrote about that. And how's that impacted upon matters and how affecting regional business more than anything? Political risk, practical risk. There are three th terrible things that have affected business at the moment. One, COVID is currently the most obvious and the impact on international travel, on our aviation and on our hotels, etc. I mean, it's obvious just how bad that is. The crackdown has had a reputational uh, impact on Hong Kong. The sanction issues are certainly very hot. Uh, I was very pleased to see that the Hong Kong legislature has not passed the blocking law that was due to come out very recently. I think the implications of that would be quite scary. I mean, if you're working for a large international bank, if you follow the US sanctions, you're going to get clobbered by the Chinese. If you follow the Chinese sanctions, you're going to get clobbered by the Americans. It, it, it would be really rather problematic if that kicks in. From a simplistic level, I understand the Chinese view, which is we've had all these sanctions leveled against us, so we will push back. Fully uh, understandable, but for a place like Hong Kong, which is a highly sophisticated international market, this could be difficult. So I was pleased that that hasn't happened. We're monitoring that quite carefully at the moment. Everybody wants to know who was it who said don't do it. It doesn't seem to be anybody in Hong Kong. COVID is here to stay. And how do you perceive that for our businesses now? I regret to say this, I don't want to depress everybody, but 
I think we're into another, I'd say, 12 to 14 months of quarantine regulations as they are. For, for a whole series of reasons, we've got the Chinese Winter Olympics appearing. This is a matter of national interest. There are some big dates coming up and some major political meetings on the mainland, all of which will occur in the next 12 months. So all our information is that there may be minor tweaks to this, but I'm afraid the, the quarantine regime looks like it's being in. And this policy of stamping out zero COVID doesn't appear to be likely to shift, at least certainly not on the mainland. We're part of the mainland. So I'm afraid that is a major fact. Relations between China and the US are a very poor state. The only thing that the Republicans and the Democrats seem to agree on is that they want to put pressure on the mainland and vice versa. Uh, I don't see a change to that. So if things aren't going to get better, we can assume that we're going to be buffeted by further political risk in that respect. To go back to sanctions, it would be unfortunate if we have a situation where a law kicks in where, where sanctions and counter sanctions are played out here in Hong Kong. Also on the mainland, for understandable reasons, you've noticed that there's some pressure on some structures, things called VIE structures. These are, without going into technical details, are basically ways that clever lawyers manage to get investments into sectors that the Chinese government didn't have in mind that foreign people would be involved in. This has just blown up. The first big victim has been people involved in the education area and field. Many foreign firms have been hit very, very hard by that. Many foreign language instructors in the mainland will be leaving. There is a very competitive and aggressive race between the technology field, particularly in high-tech segments, which is playing out. Again, this will be problematical uh, over the next six months or so. So again, those problems are not going away. Two of the world's biggest financiers have diametrically opposite views on how things are going to play out. George Soros was very negative in articles very recently, just last week, whereas the boss of another major fund was piling in with further investments uh, into China at the same time. So we'll see who's correct. But we are living in a combination of COVID, political risk and dangers around the Taiwan Straits bubbling away. It's always been an interesting time to be in Hong Kong. It's, As one would say, these are interesting times at the moment. You and I have been here for a very, very long time. Your future for Hong Kong, Hong Kong's your home. What are you going to be doing? I ask this to everyone. Well, I love Hong Kong. What's not to like about Hong Kong? I think it's changed. Whether we like it or not, whether we like how it changed, whether we're angry with the people that caused it to change or the people that made it change, we are integrating very fast into the Greater Bay Area. This is a harsh reality. Whether one likes it or not, one can cling on and pretend that we're a glorified crown colony. The SAR is part of something much bigger. I think people of our age, we're fine for people of one generation below, they're going to have to make a decision whether they buy into the GBA, the Greater Bay Area expansion and opportunities with that, or they're going to have to leave or at least stay quiet. I think there are opportunities and there are good opportunities, but I think they're only there for people willing to be flexible and willing to challenge the assumptions a bit. And Hong Kong is your home. Hong Kong remains my home. That's great. Steve, it's been fascinating to chat with you. Thank you very much for joining us on Law & More. Thank you. You've been listening to Law & More, brought to you by Bose Cohen & Collins. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. For more legal opinion, news and updates, please visit BoseCohenCollins.com or you can find us on social media. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon on our next episode.